Are you ready to up-level your performance, become a better sales coach, and grow revenue? Are you ready to be ready? Then ready, set, sell. I'm Hannah, a B2B sales enthusiast and sales consultant, advocating for sales to be a little more human. And I'm Tony from MindTickle, where I'm a sales leader and coach. And you're listening to Ready, Set, Sell, a podcast dedicated to helping revenue and sales professionals like you adopt a sales readiness approach to ensure your team is always ready to win. In each episode, we share smart insights, tangible advice, and actionable tips that can be applied directly to the work you do every day to drive organizational growth. Let's dive into the episode. What is outcome-centric selling? And why is it an essential approach for modern sales organizations to learn and adopt? Today's guest is here to explain the ins and outs of outcome-centric selling, why it's important, and how sales teams can use this proven strategy to their advantage. And really, there's no one better to explain this concept. He did invent it after all. That's right. Our guest today is Bob Apollo, the founder and chief outcomes officer of Inflection Point Strategy Partners. As a recognized sales futurist and a long-standing leader in the industry, Bob has plenty of wisdom to share about driving better sales outcomes and accelerating revenue growth. We're excited to sit down with him and pick his brain on all things sales. Bob, hearing your last name, it makes me think of very lofty goals and achievements. Uh, You certainly had a lot of those throughout your career. So let's start there. Can you tell us a little bit about your background so far? Right now, I'm working with a bunch of very interesting scale-up and entrepreneurial units of larger organizations, helping them uh, put a new slant on their business-to-business selling, particular emphasis on the complex sales process. Now, if I go back to the start of my career, actually, my first uh, sales job was wholesaling motor accessories out of the back of a battered old van. And you learn an awful lot about the basics of selling, and you learn a huge amount if you're selling to car dealers about the essence of credit control in that sort of environment. But if it was the back of a van, was it all legal? Oh, yes. (laughs) But at least we claimed it was. Yes, yes. It was all above board. And then I decided I probably would benefit from a rather more professional environment. I mean, I enjoyed the cut and thrust of selling. And I joined a technology company. And really, since then, I've been involved in B2B sales of technology-related products and services. And that career has spanned startups, scale-ups, and corporates. My sweet spot is really in scaling up startups and turning them into a really sort of reliable, growing uh, revenue generation machine. We've had a very auspicious beginning. So what, what really drew you to the world of sales initially? One of the things about selling is, unlike many other careers, you have a very, very clear measure of whether you've succeeded or failed. So that's part of it. You know, and certainly in the world of complex selling, it's a world of interaction with people. The challenge and the joy of interacting with prospective and existing customers, big part of the motivation. You've got um, a wealth of experience, and I love the fact that you've you've noticed your sweet spot really being in that startup scale-up space. Um, if you think about the big picture, what is the impact you want to make to the sales community overall? Well, I think it's very simple. It's to help others achieve their potential, whether it's at an individual level or at an organizational level. I love that. 
there's so many um, individuals now, of course, that are positioning themselves as sales experts, but you really are <laughs> based on your experience. And um, I've been, you know, trickling through some of your blog posts. And I'm quite keen to, to just go into transition into the term sales futurist and what that actually means to you. And, and more specifically, Bob, why should more salespeople adopt this type of approach? Well, firstly, it wasn't my label. It was applied to me by Top Sales World, which is has been one of the leading publications for salespeople and sales managers to learn from the experience of others. They created the label Sales Futurist really to position the commentary as looking forwards, not looking backwards, at anticipating where the world of selling is going and helping salespeople who have a desire to improve themselves and learn new ways of thinking and new ways of working to project themselves into the you know the future environment of uh, sales but in a in a pragmatic way so i'm not talking about you know the world of selling is going to be immediately overrun by artificial intelligence i'm still thinking about the role of well-informed skillful individuals in helping to shape uh, you know sales as an, uh, sales as a, a positive profession well, it's interesting. I think sales futurist has really, over the last two years, obviously, has meant more than ever before because no one could have ever anticipated what we've been through and what salespeople in general have had to deal with going through the pandemic and just the way the whole dynamic of everything has has really changed. So from what you've seen, how has the customer experience really evolved over the last six months or so or anything different? And what are some of the factors that might be making it more complex than uh, what it has been in the past from what you've seen? The pandemic has accelerated things that were probably in play already. You know, we already observed more stakeholders and decision makers being involved in, in complex buying uh, journeys. We observe a desire to consume information in the most practical and effective form, not just relying on the salesperson, not just relying on the internet, you know, wanting to be able to make sense of an overwhelming amount of information that's out there. And in fact, it, I think it's interesting to note that one of Gartner's main themes about the, the evolving world of selling is this concept of the salesperson as sense maker to help the customer make sense of the, of the world that they're in, to try and strip out some of the complexity, to share learning and experience. And I think if I observe one thing, it's really shown who within the sales community is really adaptable and has a, a personal desire for continuous development and learning and recognizes that they don't know it all. I think you're absolutely right about the evolving world of selling. Uh, it really has evolved from product to solution. And now it seems like there's a lot more around outcome-centric selling, at least the people that are really uh, getting ahead of the game at this point. So why do you think that shift is really imperative for modern sales organizations? And I think that shift is really important because if the customer is making a significant and profound buying decision, they're doing it because they want to achieve a better business outcome rather than because they want to buy your solution. Your solution is just a, a tool to enable them to achieve the better outcome. So we need to really think as salespeople about a buying journey that only ends when the customer's outcomes have been achieved rather than a sale, which appears to be complete when an order's taken. 
Tony, I love what Bob said about your strongest competitor being the status quo. I totally agree. I think it's human nature to stick to what's comfortable and the devil you know. You know, people tend to believe it's easier to deal with challenges you're already familiar with rather than launch headfirst into something new, but that's not always the case. No, I, I completely agree. It's the role of the salesperson to build confidence in the customer and help them to see the value in making a change. This will ultimately require like proving to the customer that they can trust you to add value to their day-to-day -day life. Exactly. You know, like any other personal or professional relationship, success really comes down to building a strong foundation of trust. Given his expertise and lengthy experience, I think Bob really has an intimate awareness of this concept. Precisely. Well, next up, let's hear more of his tips, tricks, and self-secrets. I love this point about the experience not ending when your sales process ends and thinking, I've done it. I'm more about being really focused on the, the customers now receive the outcome. They're now benefiting in some way um, and reach their, um, the change that they're trying to get to. What would you say are some of the main principles of that approach of an outcome-centric selling approach? Well, you have to work backwards from what the customer is trying to achieve. Yeah. I actually did a broadcast last week where the question was asked, well, what, ha what happens if the customer doesn't know what outcome they're trying to achieve? Yep, that happens. You know, that's okay if you're in a, a non-transformational purchase where you're, you know, you're just buying something you're familiar with and, uh, and so on. But to me, if a prospective customer cannot articulate the business outcome they're trying to accomplish, the change they're trying to drive, it could be a sign that, for example, we're talking to somebody at too junior a level within the organization. So I think there's a sort of correlation that says uh, more junior buyers tend to think in terms of features and functions and so on. And it's the more senior executives, the ones that have to actually sign off any significant purchase, who think in terms of this is an investment in achieving an outcome. So if you can't have a conversation around outcomes, I think it's sometimes a, an indication you're not actually very well placed in the decision-making process. Because if this is a significant purchase, then your apparent champion is going to have to defend and justify that purchase internally to their, you know, the approval group. And if they can't express it in terms of the outcomes, they're much less likely to get the project approved. So it's not really to do with, can I get my, again, my solution approved? It's to do with, can I get the project approved? I mean, what I will say is, if you're the salesperson that has an outcome-oriented conversation and everybody else is talking about features, functions, and so-called solutions, you're in a lot better place. Um, you gave an example of a, a salesperson possibly not being high enough in a decision-making tree, right? So you've got a you've got a prospective buyer, and they're saying, "I need a customer data platform. That's what I need." And it's like, okay. So then a junior salesperson starts to go through, and we can do this, and we can do that, right? And then things start to go quiet. What kind of things can salespeople do, particularly in this day and age, to help? move themselves higher in that food chain when it comes to decision-making so they can start to piece together what a real outcome is, a tangible outcome is for a business? Well, somebody very smart long ago told me that you end up talking to the person you sound like. So if your sales conversation is about features and functions and so on, you're going to end up talking to somebody who's interested in features and functions. And if you do turn out to accidentally be talking to somebody senior, 
and you have a dialogue with them around features and functions, that dialogue's not going to last long, right? You're going to get delegated down or thrown out. Any salesperson can do is to understand the context of what they're selling, to understand the business issues that other companies came to your organization wanting to solve, and understanding the examples of the outcomes that you were able to help other similar organizations to achieve so that you can actually be more confident in having uh, a value story with the customer. I am in complete agreement with you there. I always am, when speaking with um, and working with salespeople, I'm always surprised at the, the lack of interaction that they have with the customer success team. It's just, there's never been an introduction. There's never been a meeting just to find out what are those value stories. So to make your job much easier, it's uh, yeah, really, I, I really love that um, piece of advice. Well, and you talk to a function that's become increasingly important, customer success. And, and I think any organization delivering solutions as a service has realized the critical importance of those customer success teams. But I'd say even then, there's a wide range of perspectives about the role of customer success. In a very simplistic sense, it's about making sure that you fix any issues that the customers having and you respond quickly and you make sure their uptime is high and their usage is high. But I think the best customer success teams also, in addition to operational excellence, seek to understand and reinforce the value that the organization is achieving through the use of your solutions. Because if the first time you have that value conversation is when you're asking them to renew, it's, a, it's, a, it's just way harder than if you've been having a dialogue about business value delivered throughout the relationship. Well, I feel that should be part of the entire process, right? It starts from the salesperson because they need to establish that upfront. And then the customer success team just really follows through with that. So you're absolutely right. I, I think you're, you're touching on a lot of the right things. Just to pivot slightly, I read something that you had posted recently and you know, I've been doing sales longer than I care to admit, and I've run into many salespeople uh, over the years that tend to use that same process no matter what type of organization or type of company is that they're working with. And you recently published a blog about, you know, unique selling propositions, how they can be enough maybe to close, a, you know, a sale in a B2C type business, but it's not really the same for a B2B business. Why do you see that? And, you know, what more can a B2B businesses be doing to close the sale? Or what can you be doing in those sort of scenarios? Well, I think the classic unique value proposition, or however you label it, can work in relatively simple, straightforward sales, where there's little variation in the buying environment from one customer to another. But if you're trying to sell change to an organization, that story has to be tailored to the reason why that organization needs to change. I think it involves helping the customer answer for themselves four key questions. Why should they change rather than carrying on their current path? Why should they choose you rather than any of the other options? Why should they act now rather than later? And who is going to benefit from implementing your approach and how? Those things you can't cookie cutter. You have to tailor them to the conversations you've been having with the customer, which help you discover the unique answers to those four questions for that customer. And so I think in terms of not unique, so-called unique generic value propositions, but customer-specific buying justifications, 
And again, it's as much about justifying change as it is justifying your particular approach to that change. But if you are the salesperson that most influences that value journey, that specific buying justification, you have put yourself in a far better place than salespeople who only think about why the customer should buy my so-called solution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you talk about justifying, one of the ways that you really help justify is by establishing that level of trust with the client, right? So what would you say about the role of trust in the sales process? And do you think it's more crucial today in the environment that we're in than it's ever been before? I think that trust operates at a number of levels. It's trust in the individuals I'm interacting with, because I think they represent the likely interactions I'm going to have with their colleagues. It's trust in the solution that is going to deliver the results and the outcomes that I'm expecting. It's trust in the organization I'm about to do business with and in their viability and, and uh, you know, in their uh, approach to partnering with customers. So, so it, uh, trust isn't just at one level. I think it, it's established. Another part of Gartner's recent research suggested that one of the reasons that prevented uh, business buying decisions being taken to a conclusion, to a decision to go ahead, was a lack of decision confidence. And again, I think that decision confidence is intimately connected with trust. Do I trust the salesperson? Do I trust the solution being proposed will work as it's defined? Do I trust? that the company I'm about to do business with, do I trust that the collective experiences of all of the other customers this organization has dealt with can be applied to my benefit so that I can be confident that I'm making the right decision? Because I think the default is where decision confidence isn't established, that the customer decides to stick with the status quo. And in many ways, in a complex discretionary purchase, your strongest competitor is almost always the status quo. Yeah, where it's easy to make, not make a decision as opposed to make one. <laughs> what kind of things should salespeople really be thinking about from um, how they become, in a way to allow them to become more future focused? What sort of skills should they really be trying to, to improve and work on? Well, it starts with a mindset, actually. And some of the advice I give to the clients I, I work with is if they're recruiting, they need to recruit people who come into their organization with the mindset that says, I need to be in a mode of continuous learning. That characteristic of curiosity, maybe even humility, that I don't know it all. Um, I'm determined as a professional to continue to improve myself, and I'm not going to wait or solely rely on my company for my development. I'm going to take gratefully whatever my company does to develop me. But on top of that, I'm going to seek out new information that is going to help me become even more professional, even better adapted to the way the world of the buyer is changing. So a lot of that curiosity, I think, needs to be about, so how are buyers thinking? What's going through their minds? What struggles have they got internally? You know. If I put myself in my so-called champion's shoes, what are they struggling with to get the things they want to happen? And how could I, as a sales professional, help them 
make the case to achieve what they're looking for. I love that. Just the, the two words you use around curiosity, humility. You don't often hear people refer to humility where it's okay not to know everything. In fact, that's great because it forces you to go out and you know develop some ideas about what you do need to actually find out. I think that's um, a pretty um, critical thing. I, and I also, just a quick point, I feel like the last two years has almost forced salespeople to switch their mindset because everybody didn't know what to do, right? There was definitely a few months where everybody was just improvising, just do what you can, think outside of the box, try to make things work in a scenario of extreme uncertainty. So a lot of people have just been doing things that they haven't had to do before because they didn't have the support of their company because the company was also trying to work things out. Do you think that those these last two years have really, I guess, helped to, to start to shift the mindset of a lot of salespeople who may just have been reliant on, my company will get me there? Oh, I think it's been almost Darwinian, a sort of survival of the, the fittest or the survival of the most adaptable. I think the last two years have actually sort of permanently damaged the careers of salespeople who had gotten away with not having to be creative or curious or, or humble. One thing that distinguishes really effective sales organizations is the ones that can gather up the learning their smartest salespeople have accumulated and sort of recycle that learning in a way that's applicable to the other members of the sales organization. So you have a, an internal dynamic of understanding what works and reinforcing it. That moves perfectly into something that we, we try to, to live and breathe at scale, actually. We, we've got this philosophy of if we are work, when we're working with organizations, don't be a professional visitor. So you don't just turn up, act professional, say lots of fancy things and leave. You really have to create change. You have to help them to move the needle. Um, so, and just on your experience of working with smaller companies and, and large global organizations, what have you noticed about the way in which smaller companies tend to approach sales in comparison to the larger ones? That's a really interesting question because I, uh, I, I have I have seen larger organizations, particularly the entrepreneurial divisions of larger organizations, be effective in in this regard. Um, but 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 I do think many of the scale ups. But I think the nature of being a scale up is you need to work out where your growth is going to come from, what you need to do to adapt, uh, etc. I think a lot of it comes down to management. It comes down to you know, a, a management philosophy of not just thinking about the quantity of action that their salespeople are undertaking, but the quality of the action. You know, instead of saying you've got to make 100 calls a day or whatever targets, you say you need to be able to advance at least X number of opportunities in a meaningful way. Now, with the help of your manager and your colleagues, Let's work together to see how we can not maximize the inputs, i.e. the activities, but maximize the outputs, the, you know, the, the, the results or the outcomes that you're achieving. Now, I think we've seen a lot of that, especially over the last you know, two years here, where management is trying to set a certain path and it's trickling down through the sales teams and the sales organization. And um, as much as people have tried to pivot, there still seems to be in some cases, some of these underlying themes that are still out there that are a little bit older school that people still haven't been able to get around. 
in that regard, are there uh, are there any common myths or misconceptions that hey, it would be great if we can get beyond this now. We're, we're in a new realm. We're trying to do new things. Let's get past this. What, what would you say those things are? There's one in particular I've hammered on, and the, um, the authors of uh, I don't think ever intended it to be used in this way, and it's the statement in, the, I think it was the Challenger sale, that the average buyer is 57% of the way through their buying process before they uh, want or need to talk to a salesperson. And as an average and without any context, it might have been accurate. But the truth of the matter is, if I'm a buyer who knows what they want to buy because they bought it before, why would they want to talk to a salesperson? You know, actually, they might find it far more convenient to have an entirely web-based buying experience. But if I'm a buyer, an inexperienced buyer, this is the first time I've tried to solve this sort of problem. This is the first time I've tried to buy this sort of solution. I think there are profound reasons why if the salesperson is positioned as somebody who can educate them rather than pitch to them, that they'd want to learn from that. And so if you think about you know, desirable and undesirable behaviors, if I am selling to somebody in that environment, I want to persuade them to engage me way before 57% of their buying journey. I want them to think that if they do choose to speak to me, they'll learn something of value, that they'll emerge from that conversation feeling smarter, rather than if they agree to a conversation, they're just going to get a pitch deck from me. And that's where that trust level comes in as well, right? Because if someone can be educated in a conversation, that's where your trust really is, is built upon. You're, ba- you're getting that foundation. I think it really straightforwardly, if the potential buyer emerges from that interaction thinking, that was time really well spent, I learned something valuable, rather than I couldn't wait to get off that, you know, feature function demo. Um, I think everybody can relate to that. And that's an important part of what you're talking about when you're saying, how can salespeople be educators in that in that sales engagement rather than just trying to sell sell their solution rather than trying to uh, work on outcome specific things? So this is really an important part about your whole um, discussion around salespeople being educators rather than trying to force their solutions onto these uh, these poor buyers. But if we think about something you said around helping sales leaders focusing on actual quality outcomes that their salespeople are actually trying to drive rather than just how many calls have you made, how many emails have you sent? What other things would you say that sales leaders should be prioritizing to make sure that their sales team are, are really ready when they're in front of prospective buyers? Well, you know, the, I suppose the very short answer to that is to equip the salespeople to be able to think like a customer, to understand what's going through the customer's mind. More broadly, I think it's sort of developing a, a sort of a commercial empathy and an ability to talk in those commercially empathetic terms with buyers. You know, a significant part of their training investment needs to be not teaching the salespeople the features and functions of the latest release or the latest product, but to identify the business issues this particular offering was designed to address and how to have a dialogue with a potential customer around those issues, around implications, around consequences, around, so what would happen if you didn't do anything about this? And that question or some variation on it 
has always struck me as being one of the most important things that as a salesperson you, you, you'd want to be talking to the customer about. So the customer might be saying, I need this, I want to do that, etc. But if you don't understand what negative consequences would happen if they were unable to implement that or do that, you have no real sense of just how important it is to them. And you'll also find some customers who will say something like, hmm, haven't really thought about that yet, which, which, is, which is fine. But then you know where, how to position your, you know, your follow-ups. Yeah, but that would be worrying for me because unless I'm talking directly to the ultimate decision maker and somebody says, oh, I hadn't thought about that, th- that would cause me to wonder, well, how good an internal case are they going to be able to make exactly. for the investment? Because you know, I think one thing that happens in complex B2B buying and selling is you sort of start off the exercise and your competition is either the status quo, uh, and then it sort of morphs into the other approaches that your potential customer could use to solve this issue. And then at the end of the cycle, I think it morphs again to your competition becomes all of the other projects that are vying for that budget or that management and attention. So you're no longer fighting against a vendor that looks like you. I mean, if you've done your job at that point, you're sort of wrestling with well, how do I make sure that this project gets approved, um, you know, and it goes above that cutoff line uh, uh, in terms of, well, how many projects are we going to and can afford to fund um, this time around? So the nature of the competition changes. And I think if as a salesperson you don't think about that, if you think the job's over when you've persuaded your champion that if they do anything, yours is the approach they're going to choose, you need to recognize that if this is a substantial decision requiring significant investment of money, time, etc., it's almost always going to be competing against other projects that the customer might also be thinking about uh, committing to at the time. Bob, we're going to go through a couple of questions here with you. It's been a great conversation so far, so now we're going to hit you with the rapid-fire questions. So first off, what is your sales philosophy in just three words? Always create value. Ah, excellent. Okay. What is the best piece of advice you've been given in your career? Take responsibility. Love that. Accountability at its finest. Uh, What's your top productivity hack? Focus, prioritize, execute. Absolutely love that. Looking into 2022, what's your top prediction for the sales industry this year? That smarter sales organizations will continue the drive towards thinking about outcomes rather than so-called solutions. Excellent. Well, it's it's been a crazy last year or two here. So looking at everything that's been happening, what's one thing or perhaps one person that you believe has really been revolutionizing the sales industry? Well, we've touched on it before because I I don't think it's any one person. There are a bunch of people that I'm inspired by uh, and I hope to continue to be inspired by. The thing that's revolutionizing complex B2B sales is this emergence of hybrid selling because, you know, the mixture of face-to-face, virtual, you know, the use of automated information sources, blending them all together. Absolutely love that. So the last quick fire question, if you could share just one piece of advice to all salespeople, something that they could do on their next call or in their next meeting, what would that be? Don't make excuses. Hold yourself accountable for your actions. Say things that the customer needs to hear 
rather than what you think they'd like to hear. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time here today. It was an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you and getting your insights, and we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for the invitation. I've also enjoyed the conversation. No, thanks, Bob. We could talk about this all day. There's just so many things happening. It's so easy to go on and on, but I know we've all got <laughs> we've all got things to do, right? We have. <laughs> I must say, Bob really knows his stuff. I- I'm so glad we had a chance to sit down with Bob and learn some of his top trade secrets. Oh, me too. I don't know about you, Hannah, but one of the main themes that stood out to me from our conversation with Bob was just the importance of building a strong foundation of trust with customers. Yep, I have to agree with you. Bob takes the entire customer journey into account and really focuses on considering the final business outcomes as an essential component of success, which is critical. Exactly. I think one of the things he said that really stood out is, you know, working backwards from the customer's needs is a great approach to take if you're hoping to really bring value to their business. And I think this is what outcome-centric selling is, is really all about. But we can't forget, it's it's pretty important to highlight Bob's comments about creating a culture of continuous learning within sales organizations. Curiosity, humility, and self-awareness are three qualities that will take you far in the sales industry. And I think Bob hit the nail on the head with his explanation of this mindset. 100%. At the end of the day, sales is mostly a mind game. So having a willingness to stay open and adaptable to change is essential. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ready, Set, Sell. We hope you took away some valuable lessons and insights that inspire you to reevaluate your approach to sales readiness. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show when you get a minute. And stay tuned for the next episode of Ready, Set, Sell.